Welcome to An Amber A Day, the podcast all about functional nutrition for PCOS. I'm Amber Fisher, a certified nutrition specialist and licensed dietitian nutritionist, and I have training in functional medicine. I also have PCOS, and on this podcast, we discuss PCOS in depth, the nutrition strategies for it, as well as the realities of living with it and making this lifestyle work. For further guidance and meal plan support, you can check out the show notes for links to my PCOS courses and programs. And if this podcast helps you, please do me a favor and leave me a review. Thank you so much for being here. Let's get into today's episode. You're listening to An Amber a Day, the functional nutrition podcast. And I'm your host, Amber Fisher. Thank you so much for being here again today. I am very excited about this episode. So this is going to be the root causes of PCOS episode. And I'm going to go into a lot of depth on the three kind of main root causes that I look for in PCOS that I'm trying to piece together for people, uh, that I'm trying to help them discern between so that they can figure out what strategies to go forward with. Uh, and yeah, we're going to talk about all of it. We're going to talk about what if you have symptoms from multiple root causes. So if you're coming here from TikTok or you're coming here from Instagram and you've seen my recent posts about this, um, this is going to be the more in-depth view and look at this issue. So you are in the right place and I'm glad that you're here. Um, I like to start off the beginning of the podcast though, kind of giving you some updates and talking about, you know, what's going on with me a little bit, um, and just kind of orienting you to the podcast. So if you've been here before, or if you're just here for the educational content, you might want to skip forward a little bit. Um, but for those of you who want a little update, so a couple big things are going on right now. Um, first of all, functional PCOS, my root cause nutrition course is coming out on, um, it actually will be coming out the day that this podcast goes live. So if you are listening to this right now, um, you can actually go and purchase functional PCOS if you want. And so what functional PCOS is, is a very comprehensive, very detailed, uh, course that I created to help you get to the bottom of your PCOS issues. So it's actually designed to help you kind of go through this process of figuring out your root causes. And it even has a quiz that you can take that'll help you kind of see which root causes are like the most prevalent for you, like which ones hold the most weight. Um, and of course the quiz is, is like for informational purposes only, you know, it's not diagnostic, but it is something I designed it based on the way that I think. So, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like sitting in a session with me and having me like go over your health history and think about different things. And then the conclusion that the quiz comes to is probably the conclusion that I would come to about which direction you need to go. So I think it's pretty cool. And so far, the beta testers have really enjoyed that piece of of the process. The feedback that I'm getting on functional PCOS is that it's very detailed, um, lots of information, and that the beta testers feel really grateful that they like know a lot now. So I really poured my heart and soul into it. I mean, it's like more than 30 modules. It talks about basically everything there is to talk about with PCOS. It is not specifically like fertility heavy. So if you're looking more for like a perspective on how to help your PCOS overall, um, 
And by extension, you know, improve your fertility, but you're not wanting to kind of hear a lot of like fertility information because I know that a lot of PCOS courses are very fertility heavy. This is not a fertility heavy course. There is a fertility module. Um, and we do talks, you know, we do talk about things associated with fertility, like ovulation and regular periods and all that. But that's because those are markers of, you know, um, female health. But um, it's not, you know, shoving like getting pregnant down your throat. I am um, planning, for those of you who do want a fertility-focused course, my very next course that I'm going to start working on as soon as this one goes live and everything looks good with it is going to be a fertility-specific PCOS course. So we're going to go into like tracking your basal body temperature and regulating your cycles like with herbs and stuff like that. So it's going to be really fun. And I'm very excited to write that one. But yeah, Functional PCOS is going live. Um, I'm going to have a promotional offer on it. Um, so if you look at the show notes here of the, of the episode, I will probably include it there. But the first, uh, I believe 40 people who order functional PCOS, if they do it within the first, um, week that it goes live, they're going to get a little discount. I think I'm going to do like 10%. Uh, the other thing that's going on, a little win, a little win that I want to share with you guys because you're podcast listeners is that, um, the podcast has hit 10,000 downloads. Yay. Um, officially 10,000 downloads. I believe at the recording of this, we're like close to 20, uh, 10,300 or something like that. So it's, um, it's fun for me to watch because it's really starting to snowball a little bit and, and that's exciting because, you know, I've been sitting here making these podcasts for years now <laughs> and, uh, to, to finally see it get a, get some play is, is kind of great, but I got a shout out to all you OG podcast listeners. You guys are great. And thank you so much for being here and for consistently, you know, downloading and listening to episodes. If you have never left a review for the podcast, Apple podcast reviews that you would do through iTunes are really what helps the podcast get to more people and help more people. So if you've never done it before, um, I would love it if you would consider leaving a review for the podcast. I would really, really appreciate it. So the only kind of other interesting thing <laughs> going on with me is that I changed my hair again. Uh, now I'm wearing it curly. This is my natural. And I've been like diving deep into the YouTube curly hair like videos like did you know I don't, those of you who have curly hair probably know this but if you don't have curly hair did you know that there's like a whole community around curly hair like who knew uh there's a community around anything i mean come on i mean there's a community around pcos right and you guys are all here but uh there's definitely com a community around curly hair uh i do think curly hair is more common in pcos because i think there's a hormonal connection to curly hair so I just always thought that was interesting, and I would love to see if there's any research on that, and I might have to look into that for you guys. But yeah, I've been diving really deep into like curly hair care and finding that my hair is actually a lot curlier than I thought it was, and it was just really damaged because <laughs> I've been blow drying it for like years. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm enjoying it. I'm loving it. It's actually a lot more work than blow drying it, which is kind of disappointing. <laughs> Because I thought going back to curly hair would be like, oh, my hair will get a rest. Like, I'll get a rest. I'll, you know, because in the past when I would just wear my hair like natural, I just like scrunch some mousse in and I'd call it a day, right? No, this is the whole deal. It takes me like two hours to wash my hair, put all the products in and diffuse it and all this stuff. It's like a whole deal. But I really like the results. I'm getting like little ringlets and stuff and it's fun. So I'm having fun with it for now. 
We will see how curly I can get it to be on the top. I have ringlets underneath, but on the top, it's still a little wavy. So we're, we're trying to see if that's heat damage or if that's just my natural hair pattern. Anyway, it's a whole thing. I will update you. Hair talk. Um, okay, let's get into today's. <laughs> let's get into today's podcast. All right, root causes of PCOS. What are they? There are three main ones. Well, okay. Before I even say that, I should say that there are four root causes of PCOS that are typically talked about. And if you've seen like videos on the four types of, of PCOS, uh, I don't love that typing language just because I feel like it's exclusionary and it's kind of like, oh, I'm this type, so I can't be that type. It's not really like that. Like PCOS is not really a type thing. It's more like, hey, I have all these issues. Like which one is the most prevalent? You know what I mean? So I call it a vortex of metabolic issues. That's my new phrase for it. So it's the vortex. Uh, and I'm laughing because I've lived through this for many years and I have gone through all the stages of grief about the, <laughs> about the vortex of PCOS issues. But you may, may not be laughing because you might be early on in your journey. And I hope you don't think I'm being insensitive here. This is something that, you know, it's just falling into the rabbit hole of saying like, I'm this type, I'm not that type. I don't think in the long run is helpful because it, it has you exclude very important pieces of the nutrition puzzle for PCOS. So we're going to talk about some of that today. So there's four main types that are typically talked about. You've got your insulin resistance or hyperinsulinemia type. And this is where we have, you know, insulin issues. Then you have your uh, adrenal dysfunction type, and then you have your chronic inflammation type. And then the fourth one is the birth control, like post-birth control type. And the reason I don't talk about that one is because, number one, I hardly ever see it. I think it's incredibly rare. Number two, or not rare, but it, it, go, it heals itself fairly quickly. Like if you never had any PCOS symptoms, you come off of birth control and you've got PCOS for it usually resolves within a few months. So there are people who it continues on longer, but my kind of gut feeling on that is that I don't think it's a birth control that caused it. I think more that there were some metabolic changes that happened to the person while they were on birth control for that length of time. Because when do most people go on birth control? Typically they will go on it when, like if they're going to be on it long-term, they're going on it when they're young, as teenagers, maybe for, for uh, menstrual pain, or as 20-somethings, either for real birth control or a lot of, you know, a lot of us go on birth control for, because we have heavy periods or cramping or, you know, we have acne and, and we're told that it'll help us. So we stay on it for years. And so if you didn't have any PCOS symptoms before birth control, but then you do 20 years later, a lot changes with your body in 20 years. You may likely likely, not always, but likely have gained weight. Um, you may have taxed your adrenals quite a bit. You might've had a few kids, you know, you might be like tired from being an adult. So there are a lot of things that can change that could change your hormones and change your metabolism that would then make you have PCOS as an adult that I don't think necessarily stem just from the input of birth control. It certainly doesn't help. And birth control certainly does cause some issues. I'm not saying that it doesn't, um, especially in PCOS, there tends to be like a detoxification issue. And so all that synthetic hormone is like kind of hard to get rid of, uh, which is why I don't love birth control as an, as a treatment option for PCOS. I recognize that it's a necessary evil sometimes, especially in those of us like me who are more prone to kind of cancers and things like that. You know, you've got to, you've got to be having regular periods to clear out that uterine lining. But, uh, I don't think that it's 
it's it's certainly not a cure for PCOS. And if you're ever told, oh, but birth control will balance your hormones, that's a load. Okay, that is not true. It doesn't balance your hormones. It suppresses your natural hormone function and masks your natural hormone function with synthetic hormones. They just like fill in the slots that your normal hormones would. And that's what alters it. As soon as you go off of it, your PCOS symptoms are going to come back. That's just how it goes. Although I will say there is sometimes a sweet spot, like right after you get off of birth control or like right after you have a DNC or these different things where everything's like, so fresh and new that a lot of people do get pregnant, like right then and there. A lot of, a lot of people with PCOS will, will get pregnant in that like weird middle ground zone, which is kind of interesting because the average person who doesn't have PCOS and goes off of birth control typically takes them a few months to kind of like get out of their system and then get pregnant. But sometimes with PCOS, it's that, that big shift as those hormones change is like fertility. Anyway. All right. I know. I'm going on and on. It's 19 minutes in. Here we go. So the root causes. The first one, and this is the one that that there's probably the most to say about just because it's the most common. It's We would say it's ubiquitous in PCOS. I mean, everyone with PCOS has an insulin issue. Maybe not everyone. It's extremely likely you have an insulin issue if you have PCOS. Why is that? Uh, And why do we often think that we don't? Well, insulin issues are not always easy to catch on blood work. So uh, I've listed some, you know, I'm going to list some some potential like signs of insulin issues, but be aware that you could have an insulin issue and have absolutely no knowledge that it's going on. I mean, so many of us that happens to blood sugar abnormalities are super common these days. Uh, just in the population at large, I mean, it's if you are even slightly uh, overweight, there's about an 80% chance that you have insulin resistance. And if you're a normal weight, there's still like a good solid, I think it's like a 40 to 50% chance that you're insulin resistant. I mean, it's like all of us are dealing with this stuff. So it's very, very common. If you have PCOS, that's just another indicator that there's likely an insulin issue going on. So even if you feel like you don't have many of these symptoms, just be aware that that doesn't necessarily mean that there's no insulin issue. And even if you've had lab work done, be aware that sometimes lab work is not comprehensive enough to catch these things. So uh, we'll talk about that in a second. But the insulin issues that we're talking about are kind of twofold. We've got insulin resistance, which I think we more associate with like prediabetes, type 2 diabetes. And this is when, you know, um, we start to kind of lose our ability to, to create as much insulin because we've been pumping out too much for too long. And that's what a lot of people in their minds think of when they think of insulin resistance. But actually, insulin resistance starts occurring far before your pancreas, which is where you, the beta cells in your pancreas are what produce insulin. Anyway, far before your pancreas gets, you know, starts getting burnt out, you've, you're already insulin resistant. Um, and it's that excess of insulin over time that then kind of burns out your pancreas. And then that's when, when you stop making enough insulin, that's when all of a sudden, you know, the scale tips in the other direction, and now you've got high blood sugars. So why does this happen? Why does this occur? And what's going on? Well, we would call that hyperinsulinemia. And basically what it means is that no matter what you eat, you're making an excess of insulin. And it's because your cells are resistant to the signal from insulin. So 
getting your blood sugar to a normal range is like life or death for your body. Like if your blood sugars get too high, it it can be deadly. It's a serious thing. Same thing if they get too low. It's a very serious thing. So your body's number one goal is to keep your blood sugar stable. And it does that by producing just enough insulin to bring blood sugar into this perfect range, but not so much that it tips your, that it eats too much of the insulin or that it uses too much of the sugar and then brings your sugar too low. So it's all about staying in that perfect balance. And when you're insulin resistant, what happens is your body doesn't have like a good grasp on how much insulin it, it, it needs to produce or it does, but it's producing the insulin and your cells aren't listening. Your cells are like, yo, we've got enough sugar in here. We don't need any more and we're not opening up. Uh, and so your body's like, oh, yes, you are. Like, you need to because there's more coming. So here, here's more insulin. Like, I'm knocking on your door. I'm like banging down your door. Open up. Let the sugar in because it's dangerous if we don't. So that's that's essentially what's happening with insulin resistance. A very dramatic telling of it, but that's what's happening. And uh, so that excess of insulin that you're producing that you don't really need to work on the sugars, but that you do need to kind of get your cells to listen, that's where we, that's what we'd call hyperinsulinemia. And it's just this idea that you have too much insulin circulating in your system all the time. You got insulin in there all day long. And that's why getting a fasting insulin test run, not a fasting glucose, which I'm sure you've had done because everybody gets fasting glucose done, but a fasting insulin is really, really helpful because if you've got high, like if your fasting insulin level is over 10, when you're just hanging out and you haven't eaten in a while, that's a strong sign that you've got uh, hyperinsulinemia. And the problem is all that extra insulin starts circulating around. It starts messing with all your hormones because insulin is a hormone. And it causes our ovaries to make more testosterone. And once we start making too much testosterone, oh boy, well, you know where this goes. Starts turning into PCOS symptoms because we start getting cysts. Our body can't, our, our luteinizing hormone gets high. Like things can't, we can't ovulate. And then once we can't ovulate, then we don't make progesterone. And then it's like the cycle continues and it gets really hard to, to have regular periods. So um, if you're a PCOS person who does have regular periods or has semi-regular periods, like you have them about every month or you know every two months, you can pretty much count that it's coming, but you just don't know when, uh, then you may be you know kind of in the earlier phases of this situation. Your, your severity of insulin issues may not be as severe, um, but it's enough to knock things out of whack a little bit, not enough to like totally throw you off. That could be one one option if you're having like no periods at all or very few periods uh, and have no idea when they're coming. It's a pretty likely that you have hyperinsulinemia. Um, and so the reason I say that it doesn't come out on blood work very much is because typically when we test for this, or not we, I mean I'm not a doctor, so I don't test for this, but when my when my clients' doctors test, they tend to test things like fasting glucose which is your fasting blood sugars. They test for your A1C, which is a marker of your blood sugar balance over time, or it's supposed to be, but there are some problems with it. And 
uh, pretty much that's it. <laughs> that's the, that, you know, that's your comprehensive panel for how uh, insulin resistant you are. And the problem with that, I heard a functional medicine doctor in one of my conferences say, and I'm going to butcher it, but basically what she said was that looking at your fasting glucose is like looking at the reflection of the sun in like a pool of water. So let's say that you wanted to know how um, like, let's say you wanted to know how bright the sun was. Okay. So in order to see how bright the sun was, you could look at a lake and look at the reflection of the water in the lake and say, oh, like this is how sunny it is today because the lake looks, the, the lake is reflecting this much light. Or you could just look at the sun. So the reflection in the lake is looking at glucose because glucose is really just what gets manipulated by insulin, right? So insulin's what manages the glucose, but uh, you're not actually looking at insulin itself when you do that. You're just looking at the effects of insulin. So why do we do it this way? I don't know. Um, I think because the this is the way we've always done it. And fasting insulin is like just kind of now starting to be recognized as like a valuable measurement. Because uh, I think previously the idea was like if your insulin wasn't messing with your like, like if you weren't developing type 2 diabetes, like if you weren't pre-diabetic range, then it didn't really matter. Like what does it matter what your insulin looks like as long as it's doing its job, right? Wrong. Um, <laughs> because if you have excessive insulin, like it's going to cause a lot of problems. And so if you don't have PCOS, it can it can still cause problems for you. Uh, there are a lot of kind of people who I think fall in this sort of middle ground range where they're maybe not quite like traditional PCOS, but they are insulin resistant. So they have PCOS-like symptoms. I mean, it's a gradient. And so you can fall anywhere along that line. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big thing. So if you've never had a fasting insulin done, I definitely suggest it. And and we, in functional, you know, medicine, they like to look at, they like to see a level under 10 for that. And, uh, you know, sometimes that looks a little different than what is technically considered normal in the lab range. Anyway, functional PCOS, the course goes into a lot of depth on labs uh, for you. So if you want more information on that, you can definitely check out the course. But let's talk about some common symptoms of insulin issues that you can kind of look at don't require any blood work, but you can sort of see if maybe some of these sound like you. So uh, there's some things that are kind of more associated with like when your sugars are getting too high. So these would be things like excessive thirst, especially after meals or between meals, like excessive tiredness between meals, fatigue, uh, slow wound healing, bad circulation in like your feet and your extremities. Uh, dark patches of skin on like your elbows, the backs of your neck. This is something called acanthosis nigricans. And it's like this dark velvety patches of uh, skin on your body. And that is a strong sign of, of insulin resistance. Uh, skin tacks are actually associated with insulin resistance, which is so interesting because you would never think. Uh, but I know what's, what's very interesting for me is when I was younger, uh, back before when I was like in, in, middle school, high school, I used to get crazy skin tags and I was fairly, I was significantly overweight at that time in my life. And, uh, I used to get skin tags. I had acanthosis like, 
And at that time, I don't think, I don't know. No, nobody noticed it. Like no one was paying attention. I just don't think it was on the radar of the conventional medical world at that time. Uh, that those kinds of things in you might be indicative that, you know, Hey, maybe there's like a problem with this girl's insulin, but um, no one noticed it. But yeah, I remember it because it was very annoying. And we would always say, Oh, it's genetic. Cause you know, like family members had skin tags and things like that. But no, as soon as I lost significant amount of weight, I lost about 50 pounds when I was around 14 years old, which, you know, I don't recommend <laughs> extreme weight loss at that age, but that is what happened. Anyway, uh, at, at that time in my life, my skin tags started to really decrease and go completely away. And I didn't have skin tags again until after my son was born and I had gained about 40 pounds uh, and wasn't losing it and was trying real hard to be breastfeeding and making uh, milk. And somebody told me like, oh my gosh, drink a ton of sugar and eat a lot of food and eat a bunch of oatmeal and it'll help you make more breast milk. And my son was in the NICU and I was very confused about what to do. And so I just like, I think in the end didn't follow my gut and listen to that advice. And what do you know? I started getting skin tags again, right around my eyes. And I think they're gone now. Yeah, I've got one that's still kind of like going away. But but yeah, my insulin was worse. And, you know, the thing is, your blood sugar responses, your insulin responses are going to be worse the more body fat you have on you. And this is why talking about weight loss and talking about body fat is such a tricky subject in PCOS because I absolutely don't think that when you're overweight with PCOS, that it's your fault or that it means that you're lazy or anything like that. But the research is very clear that it is important to try to reduce body fat. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. in a healthy way as much as we can because body fat is its own metabolic um, system. Like it makes estrogen, it makes inflammation. Like when you have localized areas of body fat, it, it increases this inflammation. It makes you more insulin resistant. So that's why, part of why they always tell you, oh, you know, lose weight and it'll help your PCOS. Well, there's some truth to it because losing weight does help make you less insulin resistant because you're reducing the amount of body fat that's there that actually is manipulating your insulin resistance. So there is some truth to it. I wish there wasn't because I think it's very dismissive. And I think uh, oftentimes doctors use it as like a very dismissive thing. Like, okay, we'll just lose weight and everything will go away. And that's not true either because, you know, I mean, I've done that twice. I've lost close to 50 pounds twice in my life. And yeah, I've helped my insulin resistance a lot, but did it take away my PCOS? No. So there's more to it. But I will just say kindly and gently to you right now that if you are, you know, considering whether um, like health at every size and all of that stuff is is 
possible. Yes, you can be healthy at any size. You can be healthier at any size. But if you are specifically attempting to improve insulin resistance, it wouldn't hurt things. It would help a lot and would make, it would give you a lot more leeway with how you can eat uh, if you were to try to drop some, some body fat. I know that's easier said than done. It's not necessarily easy to lose weight, especially with PCOS. Trust me, I know. I've worked with it one-on-one many times. Resistant weight loss is very hard to deal with. But um, but yeah, it's something to think about. And, and if you're really struggling, working one-on-one with a nutritionist might help. There is a lot of information about weight loss in the new course. I know I keep mentioning the course, but you know. <laughs> I, I'm not mentioning it to be like salesy. I'm just, it just reminds me that, you know, I already went through and I, I created all these resources about these different things because I knew there were going to be topics that people were going to be curious about. So, uh, okay. Other symptoms of insulin issues. We've got cystic acne. Now, cystic acne could be inf- inflammatory as well. And usually there's like a crossover, but it tends to be uh, insulin based because the insulin then raises the testosterone, which then kind of triggers those, um, triggers that, that acne. So if it's cystic acne, I, I see that a lot as, um, an insulin resistance thing. Now, if it's like hormonal acne, which is kind of different. So if it's hormonal acne, it's like kind of around your chin and it's more surface level acne, not so much like these deep, like, um, if you have cystic acne, trust me, you know, cause it's very painful, but if you're getting like hormonal acne, that I think tends to actually be more related to inflammation um, and even food sensitivities and things like that. But cystic acne in particular can be an insulin resistance thing. And the one that I really want to talk about the most is feeling weak or shaky between meals. And there are many manifestations of this. So this is what we would call hypoglycemia. And this is the idea that your blood sugar is getting too low between meals. So there are many ways that um, this can manifest. Some people get like sweaty, some people get disoriented, uh, some people get fainty. Uh, For most people, it manifests as like feeling weakness and really hungry and shaky. And if they eat, then they feel better. Uh, So if that happens to you and you're not sure, like, why does this happen to me sometimes? It's so random. Uh, what's happening is your blood sugar is getting too low, likely because, well, because you created too much insulin. And uh, why does that happen? Well, it, it tends to happen when we eat a meal that's too starchy. And that's why, you know, with insulin resistance, starches can kind of make our body react uh differently than it normally would if we weren't insulin resistant around starch. So we'll have a starchy food and our blood sugar will spike like crazy really fast. And that will be to our insulin resistant mind. We'll be like, oh my gosh, you know, this is dangerous. Like let's make, let's make extra insulin here. And that's all fine and good. It takes care of the blood sugar, but a couple hours later it dips it too low. So uh, sometimes the only symptom of, of insulin resistance or hyperinsulinemia is a person getting this from time to time. And it doesn't happen all the time. If you are a grazer or a snacker, you likely avoid this issue because you're constantly putting sugar into your system. So you may not feel great. Uh, you might feel tired. You might feel drained. You might feel a lot of cravings for snacks and things like that. But you're likely avoiding this hypoglycemia because intuitively you know to eat something before your blood sugar gets too low. But the problem with that way of eating is that your insulin's high all the time, which is 
really not good. Um, neither one is good, but the snacking grazing is definitely not good for insulin resistance. So some people think that they don't get hypoglycemic just because they graze all the time and they never have a chance to notice it. Like they never let their body get to that point. But let's say you're the type of person who, you know, let's say you have a bowl of cereal in the morning, just cereal with milk and um, nothing else. If a couple hours later you're feeling like, oh my gosh, I need to eat something, that's a sign that your your blood sugar is getting too low, and that's you know typically a sign that you've got that you're making too much insulin, um, and it's it's likely that if you're getting that then you're also having too much insulin with other meals and things. Uh, so, you know, if, if you feel like that's happened to you before, it's something to pay attention to. I see that a lot with clients. So pay attention to these things. Pay attention to your cravings. Pay attention to like, do you wake up in the middle of the night a lot? That can be a sign that your blood sugar is getting too low. Do you crave sugar and sweets at 10 o'clock at night? That can be a sign that your blood sugar is getting too low. So these are all things to pay attention to. And, you know, the average healthy person's blood sugar can can manage itself, like, in a, in a sense. You have stores of glucose in your body. So if you get a little low, your body will just release some from your muscles and it's all good. But when it's not super well regulated, that's when we start running into these kind of issues where we'll feel it. Um, so sometimes you have to pay close attention to know that that's what's going on. But yeah, that's that's the first sort of root cause issue of, of PCOS. And what having that excess insulin does is it sends signals to the ovaries to make more testosterone. And once they make more testosterone, then that's when you actually to, you start to make more cysts. And once you have more cysts, those produce hormones that make it tough for you to ovulate. And plus, you never really get a dominant follicle. You never get one that gets big enough to ovulate. Cysts are just, you know, I know they sound kind of like gross or, bleh, you know, um, a lot of people with PCOS are kind of embarrassed of the fact that they have cysts or feel like they're, you know, there's something super wrong with them or whatever. The cysts are not... Uh, there's nothing wrong with them. They're just early follicles is all it is. Uh, it's not like they're like these nasty little things like parasites on your on your ovaries. What's happening is whenever we make an egg, we create a kind of a follicle first and that follicle continues to get bigger and bigger until it, it ovulates. Well, what happens in PCOS is we make too many follicles all at once and then those follicles just kind of stay around. They don't get bigger. They don't get smaller. They turn into cysts. So they're just follicles. Um, nothing wrong with them. At any given time, like most people have several different like uh, follicles in different stages of development on their ovaries. So it's just the sheer number of them in PCOS. That's, that's the issue. But yeah, those start to sense, you know, different hormonal signals, make it tough to ovulate. When you don't ovulate, then you don't have a regular period because the only reason you ovulate is because you produce progesterone from that ovulation. And then that the drop in the hormones at the end of the cycle is what causes you to have your period. So once you stop having regular periods, then that starts making you more estrogen dominant. Um, and that contributes even more to, um, that can contribute to insulin resistance as well. A lot of this stuff is very cyclical and that that's, what's so, so frustrating about it. Um, the one thing to keep in mind too, and we're about to talk about the other kind of root causes of PCOS is that, uh, there's also 
inflammation that can be triggered from being insulin resistant. So inflammation is one of the root causes, but being insulin resistant can cause like an inflammatory response as well. It can also drain your adrenals. So it can feed into these other ones, but I, I see usually more often that if the other ones are more prevalent, they're feeding into the insulin resistance uh, and that's more the problem. So so the next one is inflammation. And this is really where I see this most is in people who have autoimmune conditions, who have food sensitivities, or, you know, maybe undiagnosed food sensitivities, who get a lot of like digestive issues, diarrhea, constipation, uh, who have skin issues, like they'll get psoriasis or they'll get um, a lot of acne or rashes, hives, like all that kind of stuff that's immune in nature. Sometimes like excess water weight or puffiness, um, eczema can be a sign. Uh, those uh, food allergies, seasonal allergies, environmental allergies, like if you're allergic to, if you're like really allergic to a lot of seasonal stuff or, you know, molds or whatever, this is all connected. So, uh, inflammation, this is, this is what we call chronic inflammation, or these are signs that we have chronic inflammation in the body, I should say. Food sensitivities both cause chronic inflammation and can be caused by chronic inflammation. So even within these root causes, we start to get into some circular um, vortex channel stuff. Uh, so there's definitely it can be hard to, to discern where the, the root of all this stuff is, but that inflammation stuff, a lot of those autoimmune issues, those skin issues, those food sensitivity issues, those seasonal allergy issues can come from something what we call leaky gut or intestinal permeability. And uh, I've done other podcasts on this, so I won't go into a ton of depth about leaky gut, but basically it's like this idea that larger particles of um, food and things that go through your digestive tract are getting into your bloodstream because you've got like tears down there, like little microscopic tears, but they're big enough that proteins can get through and that triggers an immune response. So uh, once you've got an immune response going on, like chronically low grade, that can then trigger a lot of other issues. So in PCOS, what it can do is it can make you more insulin resistant because our gut actually has a lot to do with how insulin resistant or insulin sensitive we are. The bacteria in our gut can sig signals about that. And they're very, very important for that process. And we do know that in, in PCOS, it's much more common to have something called dysbiosis or um, imbalances in the bacteria in the gut. And I, I think the research is like about 40% of those with PCOS have IBS. Um, and if you have IBS, you almost certainly have dysbiosis. And uh, dysbiosis is pretty common in PCOS. So there's definitely something going on with the bacteria in the gut, with the balance of those bacteria in the gut, with possibly with the leakiness of the gut in some, some people with PCOS. And this can make you more insulin resistant because basically it kind of puts you on alert all the time. It, it makes your body sort of feel like, you know, like when you have like a, a good example would be when you have an infection. Let's say you get, you, you know, you get an infection of something. You get kind of sick. Um, you get like a fever. You get, uh, a lot of people will gain weight when they get infections, um, have a hard time. Like if they're on a weight loss journey, like nothing will move while they're having an infection, that kind of thing. Well, this is somewhat similar. Like it's a chronic 
response, it's happening at a very low grade level. We do know that PCOS is characterized as an inflammatory condition. And a lot of the research shows that most people with PCOS do have some chronic inflammation. The question is, is the inflammation coming from the insulin resistance or is the insulin resistance coming from the inflammation? I would say that by far these two issues are prevalent in almost everyone with PCOS to some degree. And usually you can tell by looking at what the most prevalent symptoms you have are, which one is your most likely cause. But I would say if you have any symptoms of inflammation type stuff, that it's very wise to work on addressing that first or at least concurrently with addressing your insulin resistance. And what I mean by addressing it is you may need to do an elimination diet. You may need to try to get tested for food allergies, food sensitivities. Um, a good nutritionist can do that. The The lab that I run in my practice is called um, a P88. It's by Precision Point Diagnostics. And a lot of Dietitians and nutritionists run that lab. It's very comprehensive food allergy, food sensitivity type testing. So um, I highly recommend like if you can find somebody local who can do that for you, it it can be really illuminating. It's more illuminating than these like home kits. Like, you know, I don't want to say any names, but these home kits because they're only testing for one type of immune response. And while I certainly think that that type of immune response, the IgG response is actually important. I do believe that, um, you know, some people will say it's not, but I disagree. I do think it's important because uh, I see it correlate to symptoms a lot. It's not everything. It's not all there is. So um, the P88 is a much more comprehensive panel. Anyway, if you have any symptoms of that kind of stuff, then you likely need to address that alongside addressing insulin resistance because um, you're probably not going to get very far with just insulin resistance. So let's give you an example. Let's say you're eating like a clean keto diet, right? Because you, you know you have insulin resistance. So you're like, okay, I'm not going to eat any sugars. I'm going to eat a lot of veggies. I'm going to limit my starches. Maybe just have like one serving of potatoes a day or something. So you're clean keto. That's what I would call clean keto because I never recommend going like completely to like 20 grams of carbs a day. But anyway, you're eating like that. But let's say you're having like cheese and you're having... Um, I don't know. Usually it's cheese. <laughs> usually it's cheese, sour cream. Like you're making like cream cheese pancakes, all these kinds of things. They're, they're low carb, right? But you're, but you're like getting diarrhea. Um, if you are switching your diet and your diet is giving you diarrhea or it's making you constipated or, um, uh, especially diarrhea though, that's often a sign that something that you're eating is not sitting well with you. Okay. So you've got some inflammatory stuff going on. Uh, and so you may have a food sensitivity and one of these new things that you're eating, maybe that you're relying more on. I see this a lot with eggs and I see this a lot with dairy could be contributing to your symptoms as well. And so just addressing the insulin resistance piece, like, yeah, it'll help. But especially if you're trying to lose weight or something like that, you may not see much movement. You may not see much movement in your PCOS symptoms because if you've got that inflammatory component and when we're not addressing that and that's not getting better, uh, then, then that can be a real problem. So addressing inflammation in PCOS is, is a big topic and I'm running out of time actually to talk about that. So, and I want to make sure I cover adrenals. So I've done several podcasts on addressing inflammation and any of the podcasts that are about chronic inflammation, like you can listen to those and, and get knowledge about what to do with PCOS. Just because I don't say specifically 
chronic inflammation for PCOS doesn't mean that the information isn't helpful for PCOS. I mean, everything that I do is from a PCOS lens, first of all. Second of all, uh, when it comes to chronic inflammation, you know, you don't have to have PCOS to have chronic inflammation. And so there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of things that, that you could do to help that, uh, that other people could do as well. So one of the big ones is to eat a more like Mediterranean style diet. Uh, and you know, I, I have a, a podcast on that as well, but a Mediterranean style diet where you are eating a lot of anti-inflammatory foods, lots of veggies, lots of healthy oils, like avocado and olive, lots of fish, like, and you're limiting your, your grains and you're limiting your starches and you are, definitely not eating a bunch of added sugar. Um, that is really good for inflammation and that's a good starting place. I also would suggest that if you think that you have food sensitivities, that you try what's called a comprehensive elimination diet. And one more plug for the course, phase one of the course actually does take you through a PCOS uh, elimination diet to help you figure out if you have inflammatory foods. And I kind of walk you through that process and then walk you through reintroducing the foods back into your diet. So if you need a little bit of guidance on that and you're just not sure how to do it on your own, um, you might like that. So I often see that inflammation is connected to food sensitivities and especially if you've got autoimmune issues and things like that, like your food sensitivities may not be the cause of your inflammatory issues. Like they may not be the reason why you developed an autoimmune condition in the first place, let's say, but they're there nonetheless, and they are triggering further inflammation on your system and likely making your autoimmune issues worse. So it's worth it to kind of start addressing them um, in that way. But I would say that by far, like the most common type of PCOS that I see in practice is actually inflammatory type with a little insulin resistance thrown in just to keep it spicy. Um, it's a combo of those two, but I see inflammation as actually higher level, a higher level or a, a deeper level issue than insulin resistance in a lot of cases. And that may be a skewed sample because I'm working with people who've kind of like tried on their own, but aren't successful. Um, and, you know, maybe a lot of people do this on their own. And if they just have insulin resistant type and they, and they eat, you know, a lower carb diet and everything gets better, they don't even need to work with a nutritionist, you know, so, so it might be a skewed sample, but I would say like, if you're struggling, um, I would definitely think about inflammatory stuff, some labs and things. This is another thing that, that sometimes doesn't get caught on labs, but I do like to have people run something called high sensitivity C-reactive protein to see if that's high because that can be a marker of chronic inflammation. Um, uh, sedimentation rate can be a marker of inflammation. And then homocysteine is a really cool one to run in PCOS. That can be a marker of, of inflammation. It can also be a sign that you might have MTHFR and you might not be processing your B vitamins very well or methylating. But that is another subject for another time. Okay, let's talk about the last one. And this is one that like, again, I don't think it's enough play. We do not talk about the adrenals enough. Um, because I think usually with adrenal PCOS, like if you hear people talk about the types of PCOS and they say the adrenal type, they're talking specifically about a type of person who has something called high DHEAS, uh, <clears throat> DHEA sulfate. And this is like an offshoot of DHEA, which DHEA is like our precursor hormone for like all of our hormones and it's made from our adrenals and it's good and you want it. Um, but if we have, uh, 
if we have some issues going on with our adrenal functioning or, or if we have a lot of inflammation in our system, see how they're connected there, we can get too much of what we call DHEA sulfate, which is kind of like an inflammatory type um, issue that makes us create more androgenic activity than what, than what we need. Um, like it can make our ovaries not function the way that they need to. So it can kind of contribute to, to PCOS symptoms. The thing is, not everybody who has adrenal issues is going to have high DHEAS um, because I think by the time that DHEAS gets high, you've already like been through the ringer with your adrenals. Uh, and so I see a lot of people who nevertheless have adrenal issues because they have issues with their cortisol and cortisol is another hormone that's produced by our adrenal glands. It's like our fight or flight response. And so, um, if you have normal looking DHEAS, you might still have high cortisol because sometimes DHEAS is like associated with like low cortisol. Like they're kind of working like a little bit of a feedback loop, but you can have um, earlier stages of this process where like you have high cortisol, like let's say you get a second wind at night or your heart pounds in the morning, or, um, you know, you feel like you've got a lot of energy at certain times of the day, but other times of the day, you're just tanked out. If that's going on, um, if you feel like wired but tired uh, a lot, like that can be a cortisol thing. And so uh, you can have these cortisol issues and they can be affecting your hormones, but not necessarily have gotten to the point where your DHEAS is high, if that makes sense. So, but nevertheless, cortisol imbalances are very common in PCOS. Uh, they can be triggered by you know, inflammation, they can be triggered by insulin resistance, but also, and more likely, they trigger more insulin resistance and they trigger more inflammation. So in particular with insulin resistance, what's interesting is that when cortisol is high, uh, it can make our blood sugar higher. And so this is where like fasting and stuff comes in. So, you know, you hear a lot about intermittent fasting for PCOS, but if you have a cortisol issue with PCOS, let's say you have high cortisol um, at certain times of the day, if you're fasting in the morning and you're like, I'm not hungry, uh, a lot of times that's because your cortisol levels are increasing in the morning and that is triggering your body to produce more glucose from your muscles. So your blood sugar is actually kind of high. Um, so you want to be hungry in the morning. In fact, a lot of times that a good, a good sign that like fasting is, is like okay for you and working for you is that you're hungry, but you're not eating. <laughs> Um, but if you're not hungry because you're just used to it, I hear a lot of people say this, that is often a sign that it's hard on, it's harder on your adrenals. And so I would advise against it. Just have a little breakfast. There's nothing wrong with a little breakfast. Um, even a protein shake, something simple is fine. Just get something in your system. Uh, so with PCOS, Cortisol issues are kind of rampant. And what's interesting about cortisol issues too, too is that they're connected to trauma or they can be. They don't necessarily have to be, but they often are because if we have a history of trauma at any point in our lives, then we have oversensitive adrenal glands. And um, so we can have like hyperreactive responses to life. 
And even when something doesn't feel super stressful to us or isn't super stressful, like objectively, we have a heightened response to that stress. And that in turn can play into how your, uh, how your hormones function and into your PCOS symptoms. So cortisol issues, I think primarily the biggest ones you're looking for there would be if you feel like you could sleep all day long you love to take naps, like you need naps, you're living off of coffee, or alternatively, maybe you're not there yet, but maybe you just get like a kind of bad energy dip in the afternoon, but you feel like really awake in the morning. Or you might feel kind of tired all day, but then at at like 11 o'clock at night, you're like, bing, I'm awake. And then you have trouble kind of falling asleep or staying asleep. There are different iterations of it because it, it all happens in stages and there's four stages of adrenal dysfunction. Um, I actually have a, I may have a podcast on this, but I know I have a plan to do a podcast on this in more depth, uh, but you might want to scroll back and see if you think that you have adrenal issues. Cause I've talked about like how to manage it with diet and stuff before. Um, but yeah, if you get a lot of anxiety too, that can be a sign that your cortisol is getting high because sometimes the feeling of high anxiety is actually the feeling of high cortisol. Energy highs and lows, difficulty sleeping, all these kinds of things. And uh, one thing that I think that's not talked about enough in PCOS is the connection to trauma. A lot of us have histories of trauma of some kind. Uh, I see a lot of people with PCOS who have histories of sexual trauma Uh, it's interesting. I don't want to get too woo woo on you guys, but you know, the sacral chakra is our second chakra and it's, it's kind of connected to like our sexuality and our like ovaries, our reproductive organs, let's say. And, uh, it's interesting that there's often such a connection between trauma there um, or it can also be trauma in like the, the root chakra, which would be like about safety, um, sense of home, like that kind of thing. It's interesting that there's often a connection between trauma in those areas of life, like fear, um, and an unrootedness and having PCOS. There's nothing scientific to back that up guys. That is just my opinion, but I do see you know, I kind of, I'm, I'm really into that kind of stuff on a personal level. It's made a big difference in my life. Uh, and I have a lot of friends who are practitioners of those kinds of things, energy healing, energy medicine. Um, and I can tell you that at least from my experience, I do think that there's a lot to that stuff. I just don't think that we have the tools to kind of figure out how to like scientifically articulate it yet. One day I think we will, but as of yet, we don't. And so we tend to dismiss it. But, you know, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, oh my gosh, yeah, there's for sure a connection between that. Um, a lot of adrenal healing can happen by addressing our stress responses. And so there are different ways to address our stress responses, right? Physically with food and things like that, we want to eat a nourishing diet. We want to eat at regular times. We want to convince our body that it's safe. We don't want to do anything too drastic. Um, supplement wise, herbs are helpful. Adaptogens like ashwagandha, rhodiola, things that help balance out our cortisol levels are great. But emotionally, um, therapy can be incredibly helpful, especially from somebody who's trauma informed, um, EMDR, and then getting more into the like, and well, acupuncture too. I should mention that because that's 
that's got a lot of research behind it. But then getting more into the kind of like the more woo woo stuff, like energy healing, um, people who are truly talented at that, it can make a difference. Um, you know, Reiki, even mas- like massage, although I wouldn't say that that's like woo woo but massage can be helpful. So there's there's various things that can be done that can help us with our our trauma responses and our stress responses, which then will feed into better functioning hormones. And if we have calmer adrenals, then we have less insulin resistance. We have less inflammation in our bodies. And altogether, we just feel better. We have less anxiety. And, uh, you know, that's a good feeling. And when you feel good, when you feel hopeful, when you feel positive, uh, it does make a difference in how your body behaves and how your body functions and how your hormones function. There is so much, it's, it's frustrating, but cool. Like, <laughs> because I've been through that whole journey of like having a lot of negative emotions surrounding my body, negative emotions surrounding my fertility, negative emotions surrounding my reproductive organs, like, um, you know, trauma responses, like cortisol issues. And I certainly don't agree with the whole like toxic positivity mindset of like, oh, just be positive, right? I do think we need to deeply look at how we really feel about things and be honest with ourselves and, and you know, be honest with a trusted person like a therapist about these things. But that said, your mindset does make a difference in how your body functions. Because if you love your body, you care for your body, and you are kind to your body and gentle to your body, it's kind and gentle right back. Um, I think a lot of times we, with PCOS, we kind of push and suffer ourselves into things. We're like, we need to get really down to business with this. We need to lose weight. We need to do this. We need to do that. Sometimes the best thing for PCOS is just to kind of take a breath and realize that your body's doing the best it can, that it is trying from day one to protect you, to keep you safe, to love you, to make sure you have what you need because your body's looking out for you. You're its number one. And I know that, especially if you're going through like infertility issues, that's very frustrating because you're like, I'm safe. I'm fine. I want a baby. Um, But your body, uh, it's protecting you, number one. And, you know, primally, like it doesn't want to get pregnant if it feels unsafe. And having PCOS can be um, a sign that your body just doesn't feel safe necessarily to conceive. So um, listen to those signals, like listen to it, just sit back and kind of say, you know, thank you. Thank you body for sending me these signals. Um, thank you for trying to protect me and work with it instead of against it. I know all this stuff's easier said than done, but honestly, it, it, your mindset makes a big difference. There's a documentary. If you've never seen it, it's called heal. That's very interesting talking about how the brain really has a lot of power in our healing. And so, we can't help sometimes, but be kind of pessimistic and be kind of negative, especially when we've been dealt a hard hand, like, and a lot of us have like, you know, the cards, the, the deck stacked against you, I guess. And, um, it can feel like that a lot. It can feel like, you know, man, I can't do anything right. Like nothing's working. Like what's wrong with me. Um, and so it's very easy to be, to, it's easy to be negative. It's hard to be positive about these things. It's hard to be hopeful. I, and I totally get that. Um, 
But, you know, I think what I have tried to do over the last several years that's really helped me a lot is to just practice little intentional times of being positive and being hopeful. Um, you know, guided meditations were really helpful for me at the beginning. These days I do, you know, mindfulness meditation. Um, I see different practitioners who help me. I, I see an energy healer. I see a therapist, like, um, people who really help me a lot. And that's been incredibly healing for me. And I, I'm now a much, much more positive, hopeful person than I ever was, um, about life, which is like so interesting. Um, because I, I've just really come a long way in that. And I'm kind of like talking about it and sort of realizing now how far I have come in that. Um, but I started out with just intentional moments of this stuff, like 15 minutes a day, I'm going to force myself to do a guided meditation, you know? So you can start small. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be a big thing. You don't have to believe it right away. Um, you just do the action, you do the action, and then eventually your mindset does change. So, uh, that is all about the adrenals. Let's see if I can get you some labs that you might want to think about running. Yeah. So two things, getting your DHEAS checked is important. Um, that's just important with PCOS in general, because you want to see it. if you do have high DHEAS, I mean, that's a strong sign that you have adrenal issues, but even if it's normal, you might still have some issues there. The other thing that I think is really valuable, especially if you feel like you have like sleep issues or um, energy issues is getting a cortisol rhythm test. And these are saliva tests actually. And, um, don't worry in this particular case, saliva is just as accurate as blood. And there's research to back that up. That's not always true though. Like saliva hormone tests can sometimes be less accurate. So be aware, but with cortisol, it's, it's very accurate and it's cool because you, you do it throughout the day. So you really get an idea of your rhythm and that's really helpful. There are a lot of actually home kits that you can do. Um, if you go through the link in my bio, uh, you can get to my thorn, uh, supplement shop. I'll, I'll put a link in the, in the description notes of the, of this episode. Um, but there is a home kit that you can order through thorn. Um, and there are others, there's lots on the internet that you can get that are home kits for cortisol. But, um, if you order that one, then I believe I get a little affiliate income from that maybe. Uh, so that's something to think about. And it can kind of, the cool thing about that test in particular is that then they give you like supplement recommendations to help you. So, um, you know, it's a good place to start. And, I'll be doing more, more on that topic in the, in the future, but I hope you guys have enjoyed learning about the three root causes of PCOS. There's obviously a ton more to say a ton. And I didn't, wasn't able to get into everything that I wanted to today for sake of time, but I think that's it for today. So I hope you guys have a great rest of your day and, um, I will see you in a couple weeks. Bye. something today or you enjoyed today's episode or both i'd love it if you would leave me an itunes review and share this with a friend if this brought up a question for you that you would like to hear me answer there is a google form that you can use to ask me any question you want and i might answer it here on the podcast i do it all the time and i would love to hear from you
Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.